0: CHAPTER Two OF HOUSE, GARDEN, AND FIELD BY L. C. MEAL THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN LIFE IN THE HOUSE THE NATURALIST DOES WELL TO KEEP HIS EYE ON THE ANIMALS AND PLANTS OF HIS OWN HOME. EVEN IF HE HAS CHOSEN SOME OTHER PROVINCE OF NATURAL HISTORY FOR SERIOUS STUDY, HE WILL FIND IT PROFITABLE TO SPEND PART OF HIS TIME IN WATCHING THE BEHAVIOR OF THE LIVING THINGS WHICH ARE CLOSE ABOUT HIM. IT IS A SHAME, SAID Linnaeus, TO DWELL IN THE FATHERLAND AND KNOW NOTHING ABOUT IT. It is a shame, we may add, to live in a house and know nothing about any of its inhabitants except such as can talk. Indoor life is so peculiar that no animal or plant of ordinary habits can endure it. What, let us inquire, are the conditions which make the inside of a house deadly to the great majority of living beings? We may be led to appreciate better than we do not only the effect of such conditions upon our favorites and captives, but also upon ourselves, the lords and owners of the dwelling. The house is warm and dark, the air which it contains more or less impure. Persons who attend closely to their own sensations can nearly always perceive a decided smell on entering a house from the open air, a smell of human breath, or of cooking, or of mice, or of tobacco smoke, or of ill-consumed coal gas, or of decaying wood. It is true that we have improved a little upon the ways of our grandfathers. We no longer shudder to admit the night air. We no longer fence our beds with close-drawn curtains or close every window and fireplace to keep out the bare suspicion of a draft. But we are still far from living according to nature. The recovery of consumptive patients who have been made to live practically out of doors day and night shows how much more exposure we might safely face than we ever do when unalarmed about our health. It gives us also a hint that some of the greatest risks to health may possibly arise from excessive precautions against cold. The comparative darkness of the rooms in which we read or write may be roughly estimated by anybody who has practiced indoor photography. An exposure fifty times as long as would be requisite out of doors has often been allowed in order to get a tolerable picture of the furniture of a room. Green plants kept in our rooms, unless they are set directly in the windows, show by thriving so ill how feeble is the light in which we live and work. The strain upon the eyes caused by our incessant efforts to define insufficiently illuminated objects may be one cause of the early decay of our eyesight. The air of the house is charged with dust. We see the motes dance in the sunbeam. They settle in all quiet corners. The housewife pursues them with a dry duster, capturing an insignificant proportion and merely stirring up the remainder. Microscopic examination of floating dust reveals fragments of nearly all the organic substances which are used in the dwelling for food or furniture, as well as living germs of bacteria and fungi, most of them harmless to health, a few of them mischievous or even deadly. Take a bright lantern and throw its beam across the air of an inhabited room by night. Innumerable floating particles are revealed. Try the same experiment in a field bordered by trees. Very often you will fail to discover any floating particles at all. There is no better filter for purifying the air which we breathe than wet grass and leafy trees. Our posterity will no doubt find a remedy for these evils. It may be that they will live in houses almost as well-lit as our greenhouses, and filled with a constant flow of pure air. If so, they will look upon us with some such compassion as we bestow upon the wretches who sleep upon a heap of hot ashes in a cellar, giving up fresh air and cleanliness for the sake of mere warmth. They will perhaps sleep in rooms as far superior to ours as are ours, to the narrow sleeping cupboards which we can still see in Pompeii or in Haddon Hall. If steady progress in the past is a presage of progress in the time to come, we have much ground for hope. In the fifteenth century, just before the coming in of the industrial and scientific age, a laborer's cottage could be built in a single day. It had no chimney, no window, and no floor but trodden earth. Four stout posts, four walls of straw and clay, and a roof of heather or reeds, were enough to lodge not only the laborer and his family, but his domestic animals as well. When long afterwards hard-working men of humble rank attained what they called comfort, they made it their first care to banish hunger and cold, the worst enemies they had known. Naturally enough, they went too far, made their meals too frequent and too plentiful, and thought it dangerous to admit fresh air to their rooms or to let cold water touch their naked skin. We are now steadily overcoming the love of coddling, and shall in time dare to live according to nature. For a hundred years past, the well-to-do Englishman, at least, has loved the open window and the morning tub. His example spreads, slowly, we must admit, but spreads nevertheless. Our posterity of the twenty-first century, not only the wealthy, let us hope, but all of them may be able to boast like Remulus, quote, we are a tough race, accustomed to plunge our children into the river, and to harden them by the touch of cold water." Unquote. We pride ourselves in this country on using more cold water for washing than some other nations, but this excellent practice did not begin with any Englishman. In the days of the French Revolution, or indeed a little earlier, the gospel of the return to nature began to be preached. And among the converts were Englishmen who had the ear of the public, such as Edgeworth's, Day author of Sanford and Merton, and Erasmus Darwin. Each apostle had his favorite doctrines and his own way of teaching, but there was a general agreement that fashionable conventions must be defied and simple modes of living restored. Fresh air, cold water, exercise, temperance in eating and drinking, light clothing and free exposure of the skin to the air, abstinence from drugs, and rational methods of early education were chief among the reforms proposed. Most of those who taught the return to nature counted themselves among the disciples of Rousseau. Rousseau, however, though he handed on the torch glowing with fresh ardor, did not kindle it. The best part of what he had to teach concerning health practices he learned from Dr. Theodore Tronkin of Geneva, who is still remembered as Voltaire's physician. A sober and practical Swiss made the discovery, sober and practical Englishmen became its zealous exponents. But the intermediary between them was the most flighty of sentimentalists. I will say no more about hygienic progress, but will go on with the animals and plants of the house, which are more in my way. Let us first run over them rapidly, in order to get a rough notion of their number and variety. Afterwards, we can consider some few in more detail. A large and well-found house will very likely contain all the following vertebrates, with perhaps some additions or substitutes. Dog, cat, canary, goldfish, rat, mouse. Among these the dog occupies a peculiar place. He has come of his own accord, for purposes of his own. The dog, it is probable, attached himself to man for the sake of food and shelter, made himself useful, and was allowed to stay. Food and shelter were not all that he wanted. His instincts demanded a companion and master as well. He came, we suppose, as a thief and a parasite. In the end he established himself as a servant and comrade, There is no other domestic animal on the same footing. The cat is on less confidential terms with us. She would never have come to the house of her own accord. Her suspicion is too great for that. But being, it is probable, brought in as a kitten, and finding the house convenient both for lodging and for the capture of small prey, she has gone on as a kind of lodger with us. The cat cares more about the house than about her master and mistress. She has never lost the power to procure her own food. She has still many of the instincts of a wild animal. Individual cats no doubt exhibit strong attachments to persons, but that proves little. The cubs of wild beasts, when brought up in the house and kindly treated, become attached to their keepers. Our domestic cats are little altered from the cats which lived a free life, lurking in trees in order to pounce upon birds. Variety in the color and length of the fur is the most conspicuous mark of domestication which they exhibit. Little pains have, however, been bestowed upon the methodical selection of cats and the establishment of pure breeds. Birds in cages and fishes in bowls are captives stupefied by loss of liberty. The canary has been regularly kept in cages for four centuries and has acquired by artificial selection a pure yellow color. Wild canaries in their native islands have a song of their own, but tame ones are regularly taught to sing, being set beside a nightingale or a woodlark until they have picked up the song by imitation. The goldfishes kept in Europe are rather uninteresting pets, but in China pains have been taken to establish varieties, many of which are incredibly odd, though not beautiful. The rat and mouse are robbers, which prey upon the householder against his will. Some further account of them is given in a separate place. One mollusk may be said to be a domestic species, in a good many houses, a slimy track is frequently seen on the kitchen sink, and anyone who sits up to watch finds half an hour after the lights have been put out a great orange cellar slug which comes forth from its hiding place to feed on potato parings and cabbage leaves. The insects of the house may be either slightly or closely connected with it. Some are mere casual visitors, which, like wasps or humble bees, enter through a door or a window and find themselves caught in a trap. They may escape after a time, or exhaust their strength in vain efforts to fly through the windowpane. These casuals enter the house by mistake, and many enter it only to starve. Next may be mentioned the insects which are parasitic on man. Some of these make use of the house as a shelter and breeding place, but there are others which belong rather to the inhabitant than to the house, and multiply just as freely out of doors as, for instance, in camps or among armies which bivouac in the field. A third class consists of insects which are bred out of doors, but regularly enter the dwelling for shelter and food. The house flies are the best example. Lastly, we come to the insects which better than any others deserve to be called insects of the house. They are born and bred in the house, and obtain all their food from it. To this class belong cockroaches, crickets, furniture beetles, clothes moths, and silverfishes, besides others which are less easily remarked. House spiders of more than one kind have made themselves quite at home in our dwellings. Mites attach themselves rather to the food of man than to his houses. One true crustacean, the woodlouse, which frequents outhouses and gardens, now and then establishes itself in a cellar. No green plants can permanently maintain themselves in the darkness of an ordinary dwelling, but molds and bacteria often find the conditions favorable and multiply so greatly as to affect the health and prosperity of the owners. Most of them are injurious, but a few have their uses in the preparation of food, and thousands of years ago, long before their real nature was suspected, were enlisted in the service of man. Of these last, some account will be found in a later chapter. End of chapter 2